Good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO, and we're very pleased to have all of you here for a very special edition of our Writers Live series. This is definitely going to be a memorable evening because we have Pulitzer Prize winning author and Baltimore resident and great friend of the Pratt Library, Mr. Taylor Branch. It says here, applause. I don't know about you, but we are delighted to have Taylor Branch here to, tonight to discuss his much-talked-about book, The Clinton Tapes. And I don't know about you, but I'm very eager to pour through the book. There has been so much written about the Clintons, and this book definitely provides a unique look at the eight years of the Clinton presidency. The last program we had with Mr. Branch was for the book launch of the third installment of his King Era trilogy at Canaan's Edge. And like tonight, we had so many interested people. And you may not know that the Pratt Library has become one of the IT destinations for award-winning and marquee name authors. Now, for this evening, people sometimes say this line a lot, this person needs no introduction. But this time, I think we can really say it, because Taylor Branch really needs no introduction. He is the author of so many great books, and he's written many, many articles for magazines like Harper's, the New York Times Magazine, and the Washington Monthly. But we're really proud to say that he lives in Baltimore, and he's a real friend of the Pratt Library. So without further ado, please welcome back to the Central Library, Mr. Taylor Branch. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Carla. I think I can say in a heartfelt way that no book is really launched until you have an audience at your hometown library with so many friends and neighbors here. Uh, so even though the book's been out uh, a month, uh, it's a very weird book, and I think it's only beginning to register now. So thank you. I will call this official. Um, it's a, uh, it was wacky uh, in conception from the beginning, and I think only an eccentric book like this with photographs not of Clinton with Tony Blair or Boris Yeltsin, but of Clinton with my dad presenting him the Jefferson Memorial Bird Feeder and of uh, Clinton playing golf with our 15-year-old son um, uh, gives something of the flavor of this extraordinary uh, enterprise. This is not a book that I wanted to do, that it was in my gut, and that I had to do like the 24-year compulsion or enthrallment with the uh, Martin Luther King era. This is a book that came after me. It came after me by accident. Uh, it came long out of my past. I'd only known Bill Clinton a little bit in 1972 when we were 25-year-olds assigned to, to run the McGovern campaign in, in Texas. It was a thankless task, uh, an uphill task. The Texas Democrats were feuding, as always, between the Yarbrough liberals and the Lyndon Johnson conservatives, and John Conley, the former governor, had led most of those conservatives out into Democrats for Nixon at the height of the Vietnam War. Uh, they said they wanted two Southerners not from Texas to try to mitigate the Hatfield and McCoy, McCoy slaughterhouse of Texas Democrats, and they sent Bill Clinton and me in. And he asked me if he could bring his new girlfriend, Hillary, and we got an apartment together. Didn't know each other very well, but I saw his political skills early. He, we got together and we divided up the functions of the state. Uh, we decided that one of us should concentrate on politics, that was uphill. The other should concentrate on fundraising, which was even more uphill in Texas uh, uh, when George McGovern was running an anti-war uh, campaign at the height of the Vietnam War. Clinton said he had heard really, really good things about my political work and that, therefore, I was probably the perfect one to take on the tough job, which was the fundraising. Um, like a fool, I went for that, so I concentrated on fundraising, and 
it came back to get me within a few weeks we had to fire some people off the staff which is a normal thing in every campaign um, and he came to me and he said now listen uh, we need to analyze this thing scientifically he said because we don't have any money and all of the staff people have had all of their projects that they want to do basically turned down by you on the grounds that we don't have the money to do it. Quite frankly, most people here don't like you very much. <laughs> and that if you fire this person, it's really not going to affect the morale adversely <laughs> as much as it would if I fired this person. <laughs> Therefore, I became the designated firer uh, and I couldn't resist it. I couldn't resist his smile, uh, and I couldn't argue with him. Uh, and we went on uh, into, um, I can still remember some conversations at 2 or 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning when we would say, we're 30 points down in a pivotal election, the third election since that Americans have voted not to have the war in Vietnam. We're down. It looks like we're going to lose. But if Walter Cronkite finally does his Watergate special to recognize the elementary truth that there is something suspicious when the president's own identified employees are caught in burglar's gloves in the opposition's party headquarters in an election year, that that's not something you say, well, maybe it's innocent. Um, if that, he finally does that and it, and, and it hits and there is a breakthrough in the, in the Paris peace talks uh, on, on ending the Vietnam War, then this whole election could have a seismic change and it could get close and it could get even so close that the whole election could turn on Texas and in turn over whether we get up in about an hour and a half. Um, and we would talk ourselves into that. But of course it didn't work. We lost uh, by 30 points. Um, and we parted in, with some disagreement, um, even with Hillary. She and I were more typical of our generation in that time in the sense of uh, a shared disillusionment, that out of the great hope of the 1960s that had gotten all of us interested in politics, Bill, Bill Clinton, Hillary uh, Rodham, and I had one thing in common, which was that all three of us came from non-political anti-political families, and all three of us were converted to a lifelong obsession with politics by the civil rights movement, Clinton as I, and I as, as Southerners. Um, we shared that, and we thought that all of this hope that had risen up and created those miracles uh, was dissipating in the Vietnam War uh, and in the upheavals and the racial conflicts that were threatening even to tarnish what we regarded as those great miracles of the 60s. Hillary and I were disillusioned. Bill said, I'm going to go run for Congress um, at 25. He was like the energizer bunny on politics. And um, I didn't understand it. I told him that I didn't understand how he could do that, that we, in the midst of all these great issues with everything at stake, had just spent five months refereeing petty disputes between Texas politicians over who was going to sit where in the motorcade and who was going to get to speak when on the dais at ridiculous fundraisers and dinners. And in the White House, years later, I reminded him of this, and he remembered exactly what he had told me. At least he remembered it exactly the way I said. He said, uh, Taylor, if you want to solve big problems in the world, up to and possibly even including how to in the Vietnam War, you've got to build up your capacity to handle squabbles over who sits where in the motorcade, because uh, that's where a lot of things start. And you've got to work through human nature, uh, even in the grandest causes, rather than sitting above it like you writers, um, which I thought was uncalled for um, as a, uh, a, about writers who who basically wish away all the practicalities of the world along with all the people who disagree with them uh, and, and take some sort of uh, moral uh, stance above the world. Well, at the time, I thought that was just his ambition talking. Uh, years later, I decided maybe he was wiser than I was. Um, but at the time, I went off into writing, and he stayed in politics, and we really became estranged is not the right word. We just were totally separate. I did not see him for 20 years. Uh, the next time I saw him, 
He was president-elect. He had sent a message to me through his office asking if Christy and I would come down and have dinner with him, and he had something he wanted to ask me. I said, what? What could he possibly want to ask me to the staff? The staff didn't know. We don't know, but the president-elect asked you to come. So we went down to this very fancy dinner at Catherine Graham's where the creme of of Washington was gathered to greet the president-elect, ambassadors uh, at, at Catherine Graham's home, Supreme Court justices, generals, uh, all kinds of people. Christy and I thought we were the only civilians there. And all of a sudden, through this sea of people comes the president-elect and Hillary with their Secret Service. And to my astonishment, he made a beeline to where we were, took two Secret Service agents and parked them against a sea of people who were trying to get at him um, because he represented the future and this is the newly... uh, the, the new prince, and he c- turn, comes over to me and says, Taylor, I've only got a second. First of all, can you believe all this? <laughs> and I, having processed him into a chicken dinner eating Arkansas politician who had run on uh, the forgotten middle class, which s- sounded to me too much like Nixon's silent majority, I had processed him into a different creature, and in 10 seconds, He made that connection that shows you that there are some people that you will never lose a personal connection with. I don't care if it's 100 years. You can pick right back up again. There was that same boyish enthusiasm. But before I could understand that, he said, listen, I want to ask you a question. He said, I read Parting the Waters. It's good. I read your reference notes, all of them. So many of the reference notes are from presidential libraries. I'm worried. Do you think, will you look into it whether the, the records that I'm likely to keep for my library will be vivid enough that historians 50 and 100 years from now will be able to do what you're doing for the Martin Luther King era and Kennedy and Johnson. And about that time, the dam broke, and he was swept away, and he was swept off into the night, and I was sitting there with my jaw on, on my knees saying he had made a personal connection and a deeply intuitive intellectual connection in the space of a minute, that to worry about historical records and their vividness is prescient beyond belief. Take my word for it. We don't have time to go into it. The quality of records is, is collapsing uh, relative to what it was uh, when, uh, in the era of letters, let alone to the time when we were recording all of the Cold War presidents from Franklin Roosevelt to Richard Nixon. If it were up to me, we would record everything, and we would have a law that would allow them to be held in secret and that we would respect for 20 years or something, 10, 15, 20 years. And then we would open them up, and we we would see how a people's government really works so that we could get a more human balance uh, for the kind of spitball nonsense that passes for a political debate now uh, once we really have a sense what presidents are really like. This project to do this book was the next best thing that we could come up with. He was not going to record his phone conversations. He considered himself taking an enormous risk just to meet with me and record secretly late at night, secretly most of all from his staff, uh, he said they'll leak it quicker than anybody, and then this thing, in the interest of being open in the future, we've got to be utterly secretive now. And uh, I want to thank Baltimore for helping me to make it secret because I was up here and I had to drive all the way home after every session and I could dictate everything that I remember happened uh, on, the, on 95, uh, driving all the way up uh, to Mount Washington, sit in my driveway and sometimes dictate until the sun came up. Uh, that's where uh, this project uh, came from. A month after his first inquiry, when we were beginning to um, explore the notion of whether we could tape, what kind of project we could have, what he wanted to do, should I be his in-house historian? Um, in the midst of those, by a quirk that's explained in the book, I, I was with him on Inauguration Day because I had listened to the inauguration speech um, as a guest and wound up getting drafted into a committee that stayed up all night working on it. Uh, and then, by a series of other quirks, I managed to get into the White House at his invitation at the end of the inaugural parade. He'd been president maybe six hours, 
Uh, and he said, let's go into the White House. And so we went in, Bill and Hillary and me. And it was kind of like looking for an apartment back in Texas uh, if you were Rip Van Winkle uh, and you woke up and there had been a revolution and, and your old buddy was him. And literally, they knocked on the front door of the White House. The usher opened it. The president said, is it ready? And the usher said, yes, sir, Mr. President, it is. And we wandered in like he was our real estate agent. And <laughs> the three of us went all around to the president's um, private elevator, which I'd never seen. I didn't even know he had one. We got on it. The head usher, Bill, Hillary, and me, president and the first lady and me, um, pushed the button and the elevator didn't work. And Clinton said, I should have known this would happen. Whenever I was on the campaign, if I tried to get special treatment, have my own elevator, invariably it wouldn't work. Um, I hope this is not a sign for my presidency. Um, but the elevator didn't work. We managed to get up and wander all around through the rooms that we later used uh, in keeping in uh, doing these tapes. We recorded in the residence. Um, uh, it was an adventure every time I went there. First of all, it's an adventure to get in. Um, uh, sure, you have an appointment with the president um, in your pickup truck. What does he want to talk to you about, sir? Um, so that was an adventure. And then once you get into the White House, it's an adventure because you never know where the president is. The usher's office is tasked to know that, but they don't always really know. Um, and, um, and he often is diverted onto other things. Meetings run late. Crises come. Uh, once they said, we have a real problem here. We're not sure you're going to have a session tonight because the president fell asleep in the barber chair and no one can wake him up. Uh, if you can help us, maybe we'll find out whether you should be sent home or not. Um, so you never knew. The book is um, a compilation of journeys trying to record the unvarnished memories of a president talking in private to record the memories that he feared would otherwise be lost with his death. It was, at times, morbid. We would say, we're only doing these things mostly for when we may be dead. We don't know when these things are going to uh, be released or what people will think of them. Toward, in the second term, he started trusting me as to where he had been hiding the tapes in his sock drawer, which has gotten a lot of publicity, um, along, uh, and so that I could put them away um, when we left. Uh, I took him the book when I finished it and told him that it had been an amazing departure from Martin Luther King, that the King books are my assessment of the era as best I could and what was important in historical judgment, even though it's a relatively recent period, but that I thought enough time had passed to try to have a historical assessment. This is not a historical assessment of Clinton. It doesn't pretend to be. It never says that. It's a record of gathering. It's a memoir about what it's like to be in the White House gathering this primary material. And it was shocking from day one. In the very first session, he started talking about Bosnia, saying, Taylor, the private reality of Bosnia is that most of those European countries that are talking about how terrible it is in private are telling us that no Muslim nation belongs in Europe and that if we can cluck and make noises about it, but eventually Bosnia will be gone and Christian Europe will be restored. He says it's much more like the hard-nosed, bone-chilling diplomacy over the flight of Jews in World War II uh, than you would ever like to admit. And from there on, on matters great and small, on Chelsea's homework or anything else, it was a series of surprises. The very first night he started talking about gays in the military. He said, people today think of gays in the military as a misguided first initiative on my part. He said, it's obvious if you look at it that that is a total misperception from day one of the presidency. He said, I learned about gays in the military the first morning I woke up in the White House after the night after our tour when there was a photograph of him giving the inaugural address right next to a column one headline in the New York Times saying president to initiate gays and lesbians into military service. He said, there's no doubt how this story 
was generated. Reporters went to my aides and said, did the president mean all of his campaign promises, all 474 or whatever there were? Um, yes. Did that include integrating gays and lesbians in the military? Yes. Therefore, first initiative. Now, he said we'd had the whole transition was all these economic meetings over what we had run on, the economy and the recession and a stimulus package and ending the deficit. It was all about economics. But we were hijacked from day one. Uh, and I said, well, couldn't you say everybody knows we were going to focus on that? We hadn't even had a meeting yet. You didn't even know where your phone was yet when you woke up. And it, it's already this runaway story. He said, yes, I could have tried to do that. And then the next day's story would have been President repudiates gays in the military. Uh, military revolts. It shows President who's boss. Gays and lesbians furious. Uh, administration in disarray. Uh, the alternative is to accept the fact that you don't control your own agenda. And on the very first night, he was talking to me about trying to tread water on that issue right at the beginning with the senators and the Joint Chiefs coming in and having these surreal meetings in the Oval, Oval Office in which Senator Robert Byrd stole the whole meetings, quoting the Roman Senator Suetonius, uh, the Roman historian Suetonius, um, who recorded that Julius Caesar had an affair with the king of Bithynia in modern-day Turkey, after which every Roman uh, jokester said that Julius Caesar was every man's woman and every woman's man. Um, and that this seed of homosexuality uh, destroyed the greatest military empire, uh, as everybody knows. And therefore, Bob Byrd said, I will not have part of any part of this. It's a sin, so on and so forth. And other senators started saying, well, it may be a sin, but it's not in the top ten list of sins, uh, like uh, adultery and lying. And we all know plenty of good soldiers who are liars and philanderers. Uh, and it went round and round, and the president said, fine. I looked over at Teddy Kennedy standing next to the window, and I didn't know whether he was going to jump out the window or start laughing. <laughs> but the point, and I'm going to stop, but the point here is that from day one until day end, until he left the White House when he said he was, he was kicked by myth and misperception on the way in and then on the way out, when instead of saying the empirical record of the Clinton presidency are peace initiatives, some of which succeeded, some of which failed uh, on several continents from Northern Ireland um, to the Middle East, uh, are his ongoing efforts uh, to create new jobs and prepare 20 million new jobs, 4.2% unemployment, to end the deficit not only to end the deficit that nobody thought could be brought in control, but to pay off the national debt. We were on a schedule to pay off the entire historical debt of the United States by next year, 2010. Instead, it's doubled, and we are numbly sitting here with a $1.4 trillion annual deficit. Instead of any retrospectives about those empirical results, the retrospectives were all about whether uh, his people had had pecked off the W's on the computer keyboards in the White House and whether or not uh, he had made a totally corrupt bargain in pardoning uh, Mark Rich. And it makes me realize that everything we know from gays in the military to W keys on the White House is filtered through a public culture from a media that are disintegrating today before our very eyes, leaving an enormous responsibility with us as citizens to help recover that. The first day I went to philosophy class at the University of North Carolina um, in 1965, on the first day of class, the philosophy professor said, if you want to solve big problems in the world of justice and philosophy, the first thing you need to do as young students is to read the New York Times every day, cover to cover. I had hardly heard of the New York Times, but I have read the New York Times every day since, and I will keep reading it as long as it is there. Part of President Clinton's disillusionment with the misplaced tabloid priorities of his era was that he and I had in common that we idolized the New York Times, not just because of what my philosophy professor said, but because of the civil rights reporters that risked their lives in the heyday of journalism 
uh, Claude Sitton and others uh, to bring about news that could, from a citizens' movement that could ferment with national politics to work great results. And now we live in an era when we don't have that, and it's going to be up to citizens uh, to restore that kind of balance. And I think having a more balanced sense of our history uh, is a good start. That's the reason that we had the Clinton Project. That's the reason we did this book. And odd as it is to be wandering around and careening through the White House, uh, having funny things happen, scary things happen, uh, that's the whole purpose uh, of this project, wrestling history with the president. We were both wrestling history, and I think I submit that you need to do it too because you can't have a very good sense of the politics ahead of us without a really good grasp of the history behind us. Thank you. Now, I didn't talk very much about what's in the book. I'm hoping maybe you could ask them, because it's such a smorgasbord from, from the Balkans to Kosovo and to Bob Dole and Chelsea and um, my personal favorite, which, much to my surprise, it has not gotten any um, of press attention reserved for Boris Yeltsin and his underpants and some of the more salacious stories in the book. Um, is Hillary coming in one night saying she just had a dream about Henry Kissinger and could I, could I help her interpret it? Um, <laughs> I welcome questions about anything, including the content of the book, because I didn't talk about it very much. There's a microphone here. Are we going to pass the mic, Carla? Yes, sir. Has, has uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton made any comment about your book? H Hillary, none. Uh, neither one of them's made any comment in public. Uh, I took him the book in Chappaqua um, when it was going off to the press in early August, and he made numerous comments. Um, he, he called me uh, a bunch of times. I, I'm, I feel a little constrained to talk about it. A lot of it was typical Bill Clinton. You could have done a little more here, and maybe if you do this, and I forgot that, and I checked the, I checked the tapes, and yes, uh, uh, that, you got that pretty good. but. The, the gravamen of his worry was that it was more personal than he expected. This idea had been his. He suggested that I do it, and he didn't fuss about that. He said, I signed on to this. You and I did this together. You have a different perspective than anybody else, and nobody's ever done anything like this with a sitting president, so that's fine. But Hillary and Chelsea didn't sign on to it. And they came in and interacted and stuff like that, and I don't know that that belongs. Well, why, Mr. President? I mean, that's part of the reality of being president. You don't stop having a family. Um, yes, but you don't realize how malicious people can be distorting things uh, about the family, including Hillary having a dream about Kissinger or any of a number of other things. I reported once that he and Al Gore had a fight. <laughs> He and Al Gore had a fight during the government shutdown of 1995 because Clinton wouldn't go to a, a summit in Japan uh, because the government was shut down. But all the other leaders were outraged, saying that they had crises just as bad as Clinton, and they went anyway, and where was he? And uh, he sent Gore, who came back with his nose kind of burnt off by all these other people. Um, and Gore said, you have to go to Tokyo right now. This was in December when the government was shut down of 1995. And... Uh, you have some days free right next month in, in, in January. And Clinton said, no, I can't possibly go until April. No, Mr. President, the Japanese are a very sensitive people, and you've, you've upset the Australians and everything. Why can't you go? We've got three days with nothing in, in January, Al. Those are Chelsea's um, uh, junior year midterm exams. And... If I go to Japan, Hillary will have to go with me, and we'd be leaving Chelsea alone. And Gore, he said Gore was dumbfounded. He said, what's that got to do with anything? You're president of the United States. You've got all these people to take care of Chelsea. Al, these are the most important exams that a child has. I will not go to Japan and leave Chelsea here by herself to take these exams. And... Um, it, it created a big Donnybrook. Well, I put that in the book, of course, and along with a lot of other things about Chelsea. And he said it will get distorted and, um, and, and turned into something uh, nasty. So far, mercifully, while there's been um, an, 
predictable, unbelievable amount of attention on Monica Lewinsky. Um, there hasn't been very much uh, about the personal stuff, and certainly not what was negative. So I'm hoping that the president's worries, most of the worries, I told him, I said, if somebody else wrote a book about me and emphasized a lot about my family, I'd be worried too. But I, I'm hoping that in the long run that you can trust readers uh, to see this in context the same way you trusted voters to see in context uh, through all of the tabloid um, scandal-mongering of your years that, that present us with this amazing dichotomy that right through impeachment, his public approval rating stayed over 60%. It, it, it's, it's something that people are going to have to chew on in the future to try to figure out how to explain. But so far, the readers are, are bearing me out. There hasn't been too much distortion of the personal stuff uh, in the book, and I'm hoping that'll, um, uh, th that'll make him uh, realize that, th that the fuller portrait was justified. Haven't heard, I haven't heard from Hillary, and I, 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 I'm eager to, um, not just because she's in there a lot, but because my wife Christy worked for her, and I don't want to get Christy in trouble. Yes, ma'am. Um, did you, uh, any theme or any value or principle resonate with you from all your exchange with him? Did any principle? Theme or any, any, was there a theme to anything or was any value or principle, um, did any, anything like that resonate with you? Anything that stayed with you? Well, I tried not to offer a lot of judgments like that beyond my judgments in the moment, which were mostly he's under stress or he's upset or he's enraged or he's yelling again and what can I do? Um, um, because, as I said, I, I didn't try to offer a historical assessment and pretend to be uh, objective. But, but I will say that, um, that I was cons consistently... Um, flabbergasted um, at the public theme that he didn't believe in anything and that he was a finger-in-the-wind politician waiting for Dick Morris and other pollsters to tell him what to do, when um, on the face of it, in a lot of our sessions, some of our roughest ones were over uh, his determination to do things without public support. And I'm speaking from um, the Brady Bill, on gun control and the assault weapons ban. He had gun bills in every session of Congress. The invasion of Haiti, uh, which was dear to me because I knew uh, President Aristide of, of, of Haiti uh, pretty well. Uh, we had a session the night before he went into Haiti, uh, or he announced that he was going into Haiti, and it was one of our roughest. I think my session, my recording that night began, I'm leaving the White House. It was not fun. It's 147. I just took four Tylenol. Um, because he kind of blamed me that he was doing it. He said he had 8% public support for an invasion of Haiti. Nobody cared about restoring democracy to Haiti. Uh, and that his own best friends in the, in the Democrats in the Congress told him he'd be impeached if there were any significant casualties. He said, I'm going to do it anyway, but I've let the politics get away from me. I'm going to do it anyway because it's right. And there were any number of things like that. Um, Kosovo, there was no public support for Kosovo. The Mexican bailout, um, um, uh, con he was the only president to consistently to take on the tobacco companies. Uh, he's, he's why there's no Joe Camel on all these, book on all these uh, billboards all around Baltimore, um, uh, among other things. Um, and he did those without a public mandate and without people doing it, and yet it didn't affect the mantra that he was Bubba, who was just out there to have a good time and didn't really care about anything. And um, so to me, um, one theme for me personally, not necessarily about him, was that I found him much more idealistic in private than I found the people who were my friends writing about him in public, which caused for some very uncomfortable moments because, after all, I had gone into writing because I thought politicians were cynical and that journalists were idealists. And there I am sitting there looking at this president talking about why he was sticking it out in Kosovo and why he was uh, taking the risk to give a visa to Jerry Adams to, to kickstart the um, 
which was actually quite interesting, why he was willing to give a visa to Jerry Adams to kickstart the Northern Ireland peace process when nobody thought it was possible. He said it was because the argument of a second-tier uh, policy assistant in the White House named Nancy Soderberg, who was the only one to argue that he should do it. All of the people, the senior people, were against it. They said it would encourage terrorism and rupture our relations with Europe and specifically with England. Uh, she said um, that if people don't take a risk, that somebody that's tainted with terrorism, because both sides are, that somebody taken with terrorism has an idea that can make into a leap to start um, uh, changing the dynamic there that will never get out of it. And that she made a very good argument, and he said um, that he, he had to search for a while. He couldn't find much precedent, but that he overruled the foreign policy establishment on the, on the argument of, the, of this second-tier deputy. Um, those things were very hard to reconcile, and those were real and direct, and maybe and again, I don't present them as the whole historical story. I present them as the inside record. But they seem pretty authentic uh, in the moment, and they were very hard to square for me uh, with the picture of a, a president who was only good to make fun of, um, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I, I think had, had really infected our political discourse. Yes, ma'am. I mentioned Dick Morris. Um, I've read that... He and you didn't meet in the White House. You didn't know he was doing what what you were doing, and he and vice versa. Um, did you know that he was advising President Clinton at the time surreptitiously? And do you know why is he just such a horrible snake in the grass? But why did he turn so vehemently uh, against the Clintons and particularly Hillary in this last election? Most of what we know about Dick Morris's influence over the president uh, comes pretty directly from Dick Morris um, and, and from uh, people who were eager to, to propagate that. I never heard him talk about Dick Morris. He did a few times. I'm, I'm not going to say he never mentioned him, but uh, the Svengali notice uh, uh, was ridiculous. Um, it, it turned into a very funny story in the book, actually, because uh, he invited me to come out to the 1996 convention, the Democratic convention in Chicago, and Christie was going to come the next day. And when I arrived, all up through security, and I very seldom got to do anything that was public. You know, I wasn't like in this cocoon. But this was security for the convention, and much to my surprise, on the presidential floors up in the hotel, which was like four layers of security deeper than getting past the concrete barriers to get into the hotel, uh, my name was on the door in a big fancy plaque, and right across uh, was Dick Morris, and the fancy plaque had Dick Morris and Christy Macy rooming together. So that by some quirk, my wife was rooming with Dick Morris, whom I had never met, and whom I was saying um, that I didn't understand all of this influence over him. And um, so I was petrified, and I went and complained, and I said, this can't be right. And, uh, and finally somebody took me aside and said, you know, you're on the presidential floors here. Um, these agents around here have very lengthy protocols for people who try to get room assignments changed on the presidential floors. Uh, I would advise you not to talk about that. So I didn't know what to do. I left, and Christy was coming the next morning, and um, I went off to do an NPR interview in which I had been attacked because I wrote an article um, I kind of minimized Dick Morris's influence. I thought that was, there was much, much ado about nothing. Um, now I'm kind of embarrassed about it because he's across the hall with my wife staying with him. Um, but in the middle of this interview, before I could deal with it very much, all of a sudden it was like I thought the Kennedy assassination had happened or something. This, this hush went through the room, and it turned out that it was at that moment the story broke that Dick Morris, uh, that the New York Post had run a story that Dick Morris had been caught with prostitutes and everything uh, and sucking toes and all of that business. And, um, and 
and, and people were running around with the Time magazine that came out simultaneously. And I, I, nobody ever put these two things together, but it seemed to me that they were just a, a tabloid delight because the Time magazine cover was a big picture of Dick Morris and said, uh, Dick Morris, the man who has the president's ear. And <laughs> that was on the cover of Time, and, and, and my interview just evaporated. Nobody was interested in my interview. And about that time, I, I knew Christy was coming in and uh, that maybe she'd get through security now and wouldn't be as... But I got my wits and I raced back to the hotel and through security because I wanted to get my hands on that Macy Morris uh, placard on the door. Before, but by the time I got there, it was gone, along with every trace of Dick Morris. Um, so um, I would take almost everything that you hear about or, uh, Dick Morris with a grain of salt because there's a heck of a lot of self-promotion uh, in, in there. And um, the self-promotion, in my view, um, um, played on people. He was using the reporters, and they were using him. Yes, sir? Were there uh, plans back then for Hillary to run for president? No. When did they first start to surface? I think, I, well, they never surfaced. Um, uh, I... I, I because I was writing when she was, because this book was written, finished, uh, written, finished this year, but I mean, I was writing a year ago during the campaign. Um, it was interesting to recreate from my notes um, the inner dynamics going on through impeachment and through the election year of 2000. Uh, she was very tentative about running for Senate. Um, that was a big step for her. She, in fact, she came in in one of our sessions and just interrupted. Taylor, do you think I should run for the Senate um, in New York? Um, what do you know about that seat? Uh, well, Hillary, it's, it's the seat that Bobby Kennedy held, and people tend uh, to have a hard time getting elected once, but then they can stay on, and they tend to be loyal, and you could have a great career from there because uh, of this, that, and the other, but you're going to be, um, it's also uh, it's a rough media, and you're going to have a hard time. And if you think you've had a hard time here, uh, people saying that you're, um, on the one hand, baking cookies and being feminine, and on the other hand, a ball buster and all that, it's going to be ten times as bad in New York. And um, so anyway, we went back and forth, and she started going up there just to test uh, the waters. And I have in the book several times the president would suspend our sessions and call Hillary at the end of her campaigning day. And, um, and say that she was undone as much by the people. The difference between being a candidate and the first lady uh, was pretty big, and that in New York in particular, she was undone as much by the people who adored her um, as by the people who reviled her. But in every day, you're going to go through, you're going to bounce back and forth between a whole bunch of groups, and that the people in New York, um, crowds in New York, are, are, are act out a lot. And, our, and he said, Hillary's a Methodist. Um, she's not used to that, and she's not. Um, so, and, and he even came in once, and he said, you know, because, and I don't know exactly what he said, what had gone on between them. He came back in and said, um, you know, Hillary, is, I have had a lot more contact with gay and lesbian people in my life than Hillary has. She tends to take a cerebral approach on the, on the issues. But there are a lot of far-out groups up there in New York uh, competing uh, and banging into her from all different sides uh, and in wild costumes and everything else. And he said, it's an adjustment for her. I think she'll get used to it, but it's an, it's an adjustment. So um, at the stage that this book is about, um, the idea of Hillary running for president, um, the, the reality was whether or not she could get comfortable with the idea of running for Senate. Now, she did, and, and by the end, we were talking about her running for Senate, and we were talking about her strategies and, and all of that, but uh, the idea of her running for president never came up when I was there. Bob? Yeah, I'm about uh, 200 pages into the book, and I was very interested in the kind of the tension you felt between your advo advocacy of Aristide and your role as an historian, and I wonder if there were any other parts of the um, of the uh, experience that were like that? Uh, the tension, yes. 
not on an issue like that. Haiti actually recedes pretty quickly. You, you're almost done with Haiti, although there have been some people complaining that there's too much about it in there. But it was a pretty big deal uh, at the time. It just made no impression on the American public. Um, but it made a big impression on him and a big impression on me. Um, there were many areas, though, later where um, not so much advocacy, because I was, you're right, I was worried about that, not just as an advocate, that if I advocated something that turned out badly, he would lose enthusiasm for this project and that I would hurt the history, which was more important than my advocacy of anything. I kept telling myself, you know, you're on a, pro a project to gather the history that is something you know something about, and it's very important. Everything else, you're an amateur. Um, so I took, carried the messages on Haiti, and I cared about it, but I, in a way... Um, as sad as I was that the outcome wasn't better, I was relieved not to be doing it. Um, similar things came back, though, when he would press me on issues um, for advice. Usually when bad things happen, like when he lost the Congress, all of a sudden it was like our, our, the whole dynamic of our interviews uh, reversed. Instead of me asking the question, he was asking the question. Should I fire the CIA director, he asked me, out of the blue. Um, and I didn't know what to say and, and that sort of thing. And then um, uh, there was one very, very tense session on New Year's night, 95, after he lost the Congress. Um, and he was really feeling sorry for himself. And he later says, self-pity has been the bane of my life, and I know it. It's the chief fault I wrestle with. But he was feeling sorry for himself. He said, I've gotten the economy on the right track. I think we can... Um, wipe out this deficit which nobody believes and all that and my reward is that the Republicans said I'm just another big taxing liberal and they took both houses of Congress from me and he and I've got my plan what did you think of it his plan was to introduce this thing called the middle class bill of rights and um, he I said I didn't think Mr. President I don't think that's your finest effort and um but I was really feeling miserable because I knew if I gave a dishonest answer, he would, he would understand it. And if I tried to just set it aside, but he was relentless. Why? Why don't you like the middle class Bill of Rights? What's wrong with it? Uh, and I said, well, <clears throat> finally, I said, well, a Bill of Rights is a very fundamental political instrument. And you don't have it for one social class as opposed to others, as though other classes don't have those rights. It undermines the whole notion of what a Bill of Rights is. And even if you did have a Bill of Rights for one class, it wouldn't be a big, long laundry list of tax cuts. Um, and he stared at me and he said, by God, I can pay for my middle-class Bill of Rights. And if the Republicans want to convince the Americans, and the Americans will believe that they can have a sugar daddy president and a sugar daddy government and that they can cut taxes and that everything will be fine. I can pander with the best of them. And I'll, I'm going to pay with... Anyway, he was mad at the voters. And um, uh, that was one of our roughest sessions. So, yeah, my, the, the role even of giving an honest reaction to things could sometimes set off um, um, very, very worrisome little um, reverberations. And it, it, it was difficult, though the whole time. And there were lots of others too, but uh, basically I was struggling to keep the rapport going to the degree that I thought it was essential to keep the historical record uh, candid and, and going. That if he started closing off or, 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 or turning... After all, my function was not to flush things to the... Um, to the surface for resolution in public now, like a journalist. I wasn't trying to cross-examine him uh, that much because this is a secret project. I, I, I don't have a, a role to push things to the surface now. So I was, I, I was, I was trying to, to milk um, candor uh, out of him, and um, occasionally it required me to be candid, but I'd worry sometimes if I was too candid. Like, uh, there was a thing on, remember the terrible lynching in, was it uh, Jasper, Texas, uh, the fellow named Bird? Well, <laughs> he asked me, uh, this was much later, he asked me what had happened in that trial, because he didn't know everything, and he knew a lot, but he said, what happened in that trial I was worried about? And I said, Mr. President, the all-white jury convicted the white um, uh, 
people who lynched that fellow and gave him the death penalty. Um, and he said, that is wonderful. And I said, well, yes. I mean, I think that justice was served, and there were a lot of people who doubted that a jury would do that. And he said, but Taylor, you don't realize this. This, this is going to be good for the death penalty because one of the big weaknesses in the death penalty is that juries won't uh, apply it evenly uh, racially. And now if there's evidence that maybe they will, it'll undermine an argument against the death penalty. So, and what do you think of that? Um, now, I am not a death, death penalty supporter, so to me, I was just, I was whiplashed by the notion that his take off of this thing was that it was going to be good for the death penalty. So that was, that was one of our uh, odd, odd moments. Uh, there were a lot of times when I was in conflict about how candid to be myself. Um, assuming that you were there for uh, the health care initiative, the beginning and the debacle, and here we are again, and I know you probably don't have this intimate relationship with Obama, if, if any, but, or, or maybe you do. That's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, what do you, knowing what you knew with the Clintons regarding the initiative and knowing what you know from the press now, where do you see this going? Whew. Uh, I don't know. Uh, one of the times that the president called me um, about the book, he, he talked a lot about health care. He, he thinks Obama is, he thought then, now I don't know what he thinks then. He says, I think that he's going to pull it off. He's paying a terrible price that it's taking so long. Um, but that if he gets any bill, he's going to get a bigger uh, a push out of that just for, because people will realize that there's a reason it's taken 60 years uh, to, to get our toe in the water on this thing. And if he does anything, he'll get a bigger push out of it than people will think now. Um, uh, in the book, he talks a lot about mistakes on health care, beginning with the fact that he should have let the Budget Reconciliation Act, which was the, 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 the signal act on the economy and the deficit in his first year of 1993, um, the year of all the gays in the military and all this other stuff. But that was the big political accomplishment. He should have let it settle, he said, uh, so that it could disprove all of the hysterical rumors that it was going to wreck the economy and that it was going to make the deficit go up rather than down and all, all of the mirror image stuff that uh, he should have let, let that settle and do smaller things um, to disprove it and to, and to undermine the credibility of the attacks on that bill before he introduced health care because, as it was, to introduce health care right on the heels of the Budget Act before its results were known uh, facilitated them, they're lumping them together and saying these are both big boondoggles that are going to backfire. Um, and uh, so he thought his timing was wrong and a lot of other things uh, were wrong. And um, of course Obama did a different strategy uh, rather than presenting, Clinton always said he, had, he faced the undertow of complexity when he submitted his 1,200-page bill. And to, to do that, it was very, very complex of necessity and easy to pick apart and attack if you're somebody who doesn't, doesn't accept the burden of offering a substitute, which would, of necessity, be compl complicated, too. You can just pick at it. Uh, Obama didn't do that. He allowed all of this to come out of the Congress, took the opposite approach. Um, but the... Um, the retrospective that Clinton had to the degree it might apply is that because health care is so big, it might have been better to, um, to have some smaller successes, to focus on some smaller successes and get confidence built up in other things uh, first. I mean, but I, uh, I don't mean to sit here and second-guess uh, Obama. Uh, he did take some, consciously take some different tactical steps than what Clinton did. Um, but in both cases, it's turned out to be really hard. And uh, I don't know what's going to happen. He's certainly closer than Clinton uh, was. The Clinton thing was pretty much down in flames um, uh, within five or six months of the time it was, uh, or even before, within four months of the time it was submitted. President Clinton was often referred to as the first black president. Of course, he wasn't. But did he ever talk about that perception of him as the first black president or, or any of um, a sense of obligation, obligation to the African-American community to advance civil rights and um, 
uh, race relations in the United States? Not, not very much. Um, the only revealing things he said was that he thought that um, he thought that what was missed about it was that he was comfortable talking about race issues. That most people um, want to talk about affirmative action just long enough to give a summary that will put them on the right side of whatever they think the right side is. Clinton wants to take it apart, put it back together, and talk about affirmative action until morning. Uh, most people have sensitive notions about what is the relationship between uh, a, an, a defensible position on race relations and welfare reform, for example. But that tends to be a short and very nervous and tentative uh, conversation in which uh, there are a lot of assumptions. Clinton would talk in our sessions about going to the National Baptist Convention to speak to 10,000 black Baptist ministers about welfare reform uh, and, and have them talk about the fact that nobody hates welfare system the way it is more than the people who are on welfare and that he would talk about that forever and he'd say there's a heck of a lot of patronizing going on in this world when people equate uh, liberalism with being for the current welfare system. So he was comfortable talking about it, and he loved those audiences. And there were many times uh, when he would um, recite speeches. In fact, just about the only times, other than uh, a recital of his trip to Northern Ireland, when he tr- when he almost recited one of his speeches to the Irish Parliament and uh, and to the and in in Belfast. Um, were the, the ones uh, to, to black audiences because uh, he loved he loved talking about that. And, uh, the night he spoke in um, the uh, Mason Temple in Memphis, where Dr. King made his last speech, uh, I mean he got carried away. He said, "I didn't have much of a text on that, but I listened to them sing for 45 minutes. I was the last speaker, and I listened to these preachers." And he says, "Taylor, I don't know what happened, but I just this speech it just started, you know." And, and he started going through the speech and everything. So, but I think the key to it was that unlike most people who pride themselves on their position about race relations and often have a, a, a slightly skittish summary approach to, def- to grab the high ground, uh, Clinton would talk with anybody about what the high ground was and how you got there and how people on the low ground might move one inch toward the high ground and that sort of thing. And, and he loved those discussions. And to me, um, that was not evidence that because he was interested in welfare reform that he had a retrograde position on, on race relations. It was evidence that he was willing to talk about these things without shibboleths in reality as they affected um, people's everyday lives. The question that I have for you is, can you give us a sense of Bill Clinton under the excruciating attack that he received in the, in the uh, impeachment hearings. And in my mind, that was the most excruciating attack I've ever seen a politician stand up under and still maintain his office without resigning. I'd, I'd love to discuss this with uh, some people uh, who have digested the book because I'm reeling about it I- even now. You know, I, I tried to present it as it went through, and my impression is that he was more shocked and more outraged about the attacks in the early earlier years when he was just absorbing the notion. He would say, I believed. They told me Whitewater would be resolved by now. I believed them. Uh, and he would just tower and scream and say, Hillary was right. She told me. <laughs> uh, I, I, I did wrong. So, um, and surprisingly, by the time of the Whitewater and the late Lewinsky stuff, um, he even said once, I'm a lot less mad about it than I was because I've accepted that there's nothing I can do about it. I still keep trying to figure out where it comes from, but I'm not mad about it uh, as I was. And, um, and believe it or not, um, we had a couple of sessions during the impeachment trial uh, and Hillary was much more upset about the impeachment and a much fiercer uh, defendant 
uh, defender of him than he was, even over an impeachment that grew up out of her own, that had humiliated her. So um, I asked him once, I said, how did you go to Congress to deliver the State of the Union message eight days or no, six days after the original Monica Lewinsky allegations, when everybody was saying, you're not going to finish the month of January, that you'll be out of here. Uh, how, how could you even show your face? And he said, oh, Taylor, that was easy. He said, that was easy. The State of the Union is good. Uh, I could tell them what we were doing. I believed in what I was saying. Uh, and I knew that this whole silly thing was going to deliver a gigantic audience of people, of people tuned in to hear me talking about, about my humiliation, and I wasn't going to mention a word about that. And he said, that wasn't hard at all. Now, um, this is when he was denying Monica Lewinsky. Remember, she denied that they had had an affair under oath, and so did he. So I think in this period, there was that long period when he thought this was going to be like every other affair, that it was their business, and they denied it, and that, that was it. Um, and, and, but then when that collapsed under, under the weight and he had um, two hor horrendous months where he did say he was not sleeping where he was accustomed to be sleeping and that, and that, and that things were rough and Hillary wasn't talking, but we didn't have sessions then, probably for good reason. He didn't want to have a session. And by the time in the fall of 98, with impeachment in the air and those elections, and one thing you got to remember, the Republican Party consciously ran the off-year elections in 1998 on impeachment. They ran ads saying, if you're for impeachment, vote Republican. So it was a big deal. And, and in those sessions, he was, he, he just said, I, I don't think they're going to win. I think I'm going to be right. I've just got to come and do my job every day. And there was a there was a serenity then that there had not been in the first couple of years when he was really disillusioned um, by the press coverage and by uh, kind of the political hysteria over even something like Vince Foster. You know, that lasted for five years, uh, allegations that he had murdered his own uh, best friend. So um, I don't know where that serenity came from uh, through impeachment, but um, there was... I've got, I mean, just as a small example, during the impeachment trial, we had a session, a recording session. It was late at night. Um, Hillary was there. Um, Hillary was there calling senators and talking about them. And when I got there, the usher summoned uh, uh, the doorman, a uh, guy in a tuxedo, to take me up to the president. The president summoned Mr. Branch. Please take him up. And the doorman said, uh, no, I can't. And the usher said, what are you talking about? And the usher kind of was very uncomfortable, and he came over um, next to me and said, but it was loud enough for me to overhear, he said, I was just up there, they're smooching in the doorway. Um, and I was shocked, and the usher said, well, um, why don't you peek around the, the room, peek around the corner and, 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 and look and make sure everything's all right? And he said, I really wish you would call up there first. Uh, to make sure. And so I'm sitting there saying, I've never seen this. These people are very, very discreet. They don't do this. This doorman is refusing to take me up to start a session because the president and, the, and Hillary are making out in a doorway. And we come up there. They're arguing about um, impeachment. We have this session, which is about his fear of nuclear war breaking out in Kashmir over Kashmir between um, um, uh, India and Pakistan, a whole bunch of other issues. And he's just arrived from an audience with the Pope in which he and the Pope are trying, he's trying to get the Pope, the Pope says that his plan to, um, for birth control in the world is to educate women, that if all the women on the planet were literate, they would find a way to limit their families and he wouldn't have to say anything about theology. The president is all involved with this, and as I'm leaving this session, reeling about all this stuff going on, the usher that forced the doorman to take us past the smoochers 
for the only time in all of our 79 sessions, walks me out of the White House. And I think it was because she wanted to make sure that I would not whisper anything about, uh, about this. Because she said, you, if it got out that the president was smooching in the, during the impeachment trial, uh, who knows what would happen, and I would probably be fired. And I've said, look, I've spent six years not saying a, breathing a word about any of this. Don't worry. But as we're leaving, there's a chair in the middle of the room um, chair in the middle of the floor in the diplomatic entrance, and it's sitting there, a lone chair. And I said, why is that chair there? And she, and she looked at it, and she says, well, when the president was coming back from the Pope on his way up to see you, I was down here, and he walked through, and Stephen Hawking, that scientist from England, was sitting there in his wheelchair. And the president was in a hurry, but he pulled over that chair next to Stephen Hawking's wheelchair, and they talked about the cosmos and everything under the sun for about 45 minutes. Um, so this is a president when theoretically the Senate could have voted that moment to kick him out and the movers would have been there, and he's off with the Pope, he's smooching with Hillary, and, and he's talking with Stephen Hawking uh, about the universe. So somehow he, the stuff that had eaten at him and if you read the early part of the book, I, he is sensitive. About, that's another thing, aside from the personal stuff. He is sensitive that in the first part of the book, he's exploding a lot over his disillusionment about press coverage. And, and I said to him, Mr. President, every president fushes about press coverage. This, this may be just a little a bit in extreme, but if people will get to the end of the book, they'll see what really baffled me, which is that somehow... Um, you outgrew that, or you found some sort of um, uh, monk's zone uh, where you weren't paying any attention to it. But it's a mystery to me. It's a very good question. Thank you. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Carla. Really appreciate it. Um,